you please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 16 this morning, looking at the first four verses in chapter 16. That's found on page 962. So we're now coming down the home stretch in our study of 1 Corinthians. This is our 44th sermon in this book. And as I mentioned last week, I believe this last section that we looked at in, in chapter 15, where Paul boldly declares that death has been swallowed up in victory. He goes, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I believe that's the high point. That's the crescendo of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And it's also the destination of the Christian life. And it's interesting how Paul goes from talking about such a grand and, and magnificent doctrine as the resurrection in our final eternal state in glory, where, where death has been defeated it's interesting how Paul then immediately transitions to some very practical instructions. In these first four verses of, of chapter 16, Paul gives detailed instructions about taking up a collection to provide for the very pressing and very immediate needs for the saints suffering in the city of Jerusalem. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, then I will I, they will accompany me. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We know your word is inspired. It is useful to us. It is God-breathed. And Father, I pray for your spirit to be with me, that I will proclaim only your truth, that I will proclaim your truth by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will be clear, that it will be understandable, it will be compelling, it will compel us to action. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we will hear from you. Lord, we will hear your voice. We will have an encounter with Jesus. We will not be the same. Each one of us will leave here more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, I was recently uh, reading an article about a Chattanooga, Tennessee megachurch. And what has really been, sadly, a far too common occurrence where the church is imploding. And it's imploding due to sin. Sin of the pastor. The pastor committed adultery, and he's now in the process of getting a divorce, and he's in a, a bitter custody battle with his wife over his children. And he's, still, he's actually still serving as a pastor, which is amazing. In addition to all this, due to lack of transparency with respect to the church's debt, the church is now looking at a foreclosure of their building from creditors. And as sad as this is, this is not what really caught my attention in the story. This church, which is less than 10 years old, has had an astronomical rate of growth, reaching a peak attendance of more than 1,500 a week in just a few years. But what caught my attention in this article was a comment that was made by a former member of the church on the content of the pastor's typical message. And he says there was a heavy focus on recruiting, recruiting people to come to the church. They would say, go to the mall, invite people to the church, go to your family, go to your friends, go to your neighbors. Even if they're involved in the church, even if they're Christians, invite them to our church, come to our church. That was one of the messages. And the other message, once they got them in there, was on the topic of tithing, the necessity of financially supporting the church, supporting God's work. And the church was constantly asking 
for money, for different projects, for, for different ministries, and, and all of this over and above the regular giving, the normal giving. And there was this constant pressure, constant financial pressure on the congregation to give and to give more. And the implied message was that souls would be lost unless you sacrificially gave, increased your sacrificial giving. And just a few weeks ago, after the service, I was talking to someone here in the church who was telling me about other churches that they knew that seemed to be always asking for money. And, the, and they said almost every other sermon was on tithing. And the person looked at me and said, I don't remember you ever preaching once on tithing or giving to the church. And that's true. I didn't remember either until now. Actually, Nathan came up behind me and said, well, wait till he gets to chapter 16 in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> well, that's where we are today. Well, the nice thing and sometimes the difficult thing about preaching verse by verse through entire books of the Bible is that the text sets the agenda, not the preacher. We have to cover the whole thing. We can't hide it. Sometimes it would be easy. It would be so easy for me to just kind of go through this whole verse, you know, this whole chapter. We got past chapter 15, which is the highlight. Let's just, and a lot of times, a lot of people preach through, they'll, they'll preach the whole verse, but I don't, think, I don't think that's what the Lord wants. So we need to cover the whole thing. We can't hide from uncomfortable or difficult passages. We have to address the whole thing. And truthfully, I would rather not preach on giving. It seems very self-serving to me. I get my income from the church. A portion of your your, your giving benefits me personally. And my temptation really is to hold back, is, is to hold back on what, what God's word says. I don't want to appear to be self-serving. And, and, and my temptation is to, is to gloss over. But again, I wouldn't be doing my job. I don't want to be seen as like this Chattanooga preacher always asking for money. I want to trust the Lord. I want him to, to trust the Lord to provide for our needs. And he has. He has certainly provided for our needs personally as, as well as a, a church. I've been amazed at God's faithfulness to provide for this small church here and how he's enabled us to really to, to punch way above our, our weight and our service in the kingdom, as we talked about before, just is evidenced by the number of people going out in the mission field from this small church. But before we even look at this text, I want to I lay for us some, some biblical principles, uh, so a foundation that we get with respect to giving that we find in the Old Testament. So the first thing we need to, to understand with respect to our, our physical possessions, with respect to our wealth, is that God owns it all. God owns everything. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Haggai 2.8 says, The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. See, uh, see, everything belongs to God. So we have to understand that it's not ours. Now, that's the first thing. The next thing we need to look at is the, the concept of the tithes, or, or the first fruits that we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, when we're going through this, the, the first Corinthians. That this concept is that we give a portion, like we give a tenth of our increase as an acknowledgement, an acknowledgement that God owns it all. We give a portion. We give the first fruits. First Chronicles 29, 14 says, For all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given thee. And I remember we, uh, I attended a church years ago, and we would actually recite this verse after we would do the offertory. So we'd get the offertory instead of singing the doxology some churches do. We would just say, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own. Have we given thee? And this helps us to acknowledge that we are giving a portion of what God has already given to us. All of it is God. So that's the first thing we need to understand. And all of this increase is from the Lord. It, it, it's a sign of his grace. It's a sign of his blessing. And giving back, basically giving back keeps us in alignment with this reality. It gives us understanding. It gives us an acknowledgement of the reality. All belongs to the Lord, and we are acknowledging that. It's important for us to understand that the tithe was for God's people, Israel. It was a formal regulation. It was part of the old covenant. 
We see this in Leviticus. It was part of the law. Leviticus 27, 30, and 32 says, Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's, is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that passes under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. Now for the Christian, for the Christian, the law has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled in Christ. We are not under the law. The Christian is not obligated to the, to the prohibitions, the, the, the requirements of the law, is not obligated to tithe. The New Testament actually does not mention any place that the Christian is required to tithe. And furthermore, the, the tithe was, was not only the legal requirement for those under the old covenant, there were also other obligations, sacrifices, festivals that were required under the law. And the total obligation was not a tenth, but it actually was a third. A third of one's increase. These were the obligations that would be included. So if people are talking about New Testament tithing, they're usually only talking about a tenth. But if you really want to tithe with the Old Testament, you're giving a third of your giving. And the main purpose of the tithe, again, was spiritual. It was an explicit acknowledgement that all increase was from the Lord. But what was the practical use of the tithe? We're told in, in Numbers 18, 21. It says, To the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in a tenth of meeting. So if you remember, the other 11 tribes were given land. They were given inheritance by the Lord, this land. And Scripture tells us that the Levites were not. Scripture tells us that the Lord was the inheritance for the Levites. So the other 11 tribes, they would work the ground in obedience to the Lord, and out of the ground they would receive their increase. Again, the Lord provided this increase to the, to the Israelites by the produce of their land. But the Levites, the Levites were set apart for the things of God. They were not given land to work. That was not their job. They were not to be farmers. They were not to be herdsmen. They were set apart from the other tribes, and they were given a very specific responsibility. They maintained the temple. They offered the sacrifice. They were the priests interceding for the people of Israel before the Lord. They were the keepers of the law. They were the teachers of of the law. So the Levites, so they could have time to full, full-time focus on this job, their physical needs were met. They were supported by the tithes of the other tribes. But notice the Levites themselves were required to tithe, tithe from their tithe. Numbers 18, 26 and 27 says, Moreover, you shall speak and say to the Levites, when you take from the people of Israel the tithe that I have given to you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your contribution shall be counted to you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor, as though it were the fullness of the winepress. So you shall also present a contribution to the Lord for all, from all your tithes which you have received from the people of Israel. See, the Levites were to go to the Lord and they were to give this tithe of the fruit of their labor, a tithe of their, which were tithes from the other tribes. And this was considered by the Lord just as much as if the Lord had given them grapes, had given them grain, and they were given from that. This is what they were They were giving a, the produce of their labor. Now notice also, another, another thing that's, that's important is that these, they didn't uh, also go directly to the poor. God had set up other mechanisms to take care of the poor. And the, there was gleaning, as, as we know from the book of, of Ruth, that's very prominent there. And, and Levite, uh, Leviticus 23.22 says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edges, nor shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord. 
So this was a provision to help the poor, to, to allow them to really to help themselves. They didn't have land for whatever reason, so they can go and glean this. Another provision, uh, a provision uh, that helped the poor was that they that uh, there was the Israelites were prohibited for charging each other interest on loans to a fellow Israelite. And we see this in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 23. And what this did is this prevented perpetual um, perpetual poverty. You know, if you, if you found yourself in temporary need and then you had to take out a loan to help get by and then you had high interest, you could never get out. We see that today. Many people are, are caught in this perpetual poverty in part by, by high loans that they have. So that, this was one of the provisions. Another provision uh, was that uh, if an Israelite came on hard times, they could actually sell themselves or a member of their family into slavery. Now a lot of people get, whoa, whoa what about this? Now this was really more like indentured servitude rather than the chattel slavery that we found in America. Um, the slaves had rights. There were laws governing uh, the practice. It was temporary. There was a time when they were released. And I, I preached a sermon on this in an evening service. Uh, so if you're interested more about the Old Testament understanding of slavery, just go on our sermon audio site and you can listen to that, that site about it. But um, um, that was one of the provisions. Another provision for the poor was the year of Jubilee. And this is described in Leviticus 25. And this is where all debts are forgiven and land is returned to the original families. So remember, these, this land is given by the Lord in perpetuity to the various tribes. So if you run into hard, hard times, you sell the land. Uh, it's really bad for your descendants. But after the, after the year of Jubilee, this land will have to go back to its original tribe. So again, this, this, this eliminates this gener, generational poverty uh, that could happen because of mistakes or poor decisions made by a family member. So this is the Old Testament. This is the giving. This is the foundation that we want to start with. Now we come to giving in the New Testament. And there are some similarities, but there are also some major differences. As far as the similarities, the same principle applies, that all possessions, all our resources belong to the Lord. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. So our giving, which is also called our stewardship, reflects this principle. And furthermore, with the tithe, the New Testament gives, giving goes to support those who labor full-time in the things of the Lord. So this is for furthering the gospel. This is to support missionaries, like we're supporting the missionaries that this church has sent out. Ministers, pastors, the work of the Lord. 1 Timothy 5, 17 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And Paul himself, as a missionary, received support from the church in Philippi, as we see in Philippians 4.15. So these are the similarities of the New Testament giving with the Old Testament tithe. But there are also some major differences. <clears throat> so let's look at the major difference. First major difference is that we see, specifically in this passage, is that the giving in the New Testament is not limited only to support the church. It's not limited only for the furthering of the gospel. A large portion of the giving that we see in the New Testament is used to help the poor. It's used what we would consider mercy ministries. It's used to provide physical support for, for suffering Christians. And this, this collection that we're even looking at in this passage here uh, is most likely going to the, the saints in Jerusalem. In verse 3, Paul directs the gift to be taken to Jerusalem. And some speculate that this could be a, there could be a famine, as was predicted in, in Acts 11.28. 
Another could be just as, as we see in the book of Acts, there was a lot of persecution going on in Jerusalem of the early church. Remember, this is the center of Judaism. And Judaism was the, was, was the, the persecution came through the, the, the Jewish system. Uh, it would have been difficult if, if a lot of jobs were related to the temple. The Christians would not be able to do this. So th- there's a good, uh, th- this could be the reason why th- there was a need here to assist the Christians. And we see this in other, other areas uh, in, in the book of Acts, that the giving is to specifically to help the physical needs. And this change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this would actually make sense because the church was no longer a theocracy like we saw in ancient, like Israel was, the nation of Israel. The poor and marginalized could no longer be protected by these protections of the, the structural protections in the Mosaic law, such as gleaning and interest-free loans and, and the year of Jubilee. So this is the first major difference between Old Testament and New Testament that we see in stewardship. The second major difference is that, that the rigid and, and prescribed obligations defined in the law, that is tithes and sacrifices and festivals, amounting again up to one-third of their income, this was not specified in the New Testament. They were not a requirement for the church. So this is the background. With this background, let's, let's look at this passage and see what, what God's requirements are for us as his church and in his New Testament church with respect to giving. So we're going to look at a couple of things. First thing we see in this requirement is that this requirement is universal. It's universal. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. So this is, this is saying this is not a, an isolated direction. It's not an isolated command given only to the Corinthians. Paul has given it to all the churches in Galatia. And he's laying out basically gen, general principles that go beyond this specific need, this specific collection. And this verse really highlights the connectedness of the churches, the connectedness that we have as Christians. As Mike was just saying, he was not just thanking this local church, but thanking of all the broader church, the connection that we have as Christians. See, we're not solely to be concerned with our own needs as a church. Yes, yes, this is our first priority. This is a family. We take care of each other. But our obligation doesn't stop here. It doesn't stop with ourselves. We are to be concerned with, we are to assist all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Where we see a need, we are to be concerned. We are, we are to be concerned with those outside our local community. In fact, God often provides a surplus for one part of his church to provide for a need that's in another part of his church. And in this, God answers the prayer. So, so part of the church is praying for the needs, and God uses the other part of the church to help. They answer these prayers through his people, through his church. And, of course, God could provide the needs directly. He owns all things, as, as we hear in uh, Psalm 50, verse 10. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He could speak things into existence, as he did with the fishes and the loaves in the Gospels. Or he could use unbelievers to provide as we, as we see in the book of Exodus, when the plundering of the Egyptians, when the Israelites left Egypt. But he gives us, he gives the church the privilege. And that's what it is. It's a privilege to be the answer to the prayers and the means of provision for his people. So that's the first thing we see. Second thing we see is not only is this requirement universal for all the churches, it's also universal for all the members of the churches. Look at verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside, each of you. This is a command given at the individual level. Paul's not just putting an obligation on, on the church in general. He's not just putting an obligation on the wealthy or putting an obligation on the leaders. It is on the individual Christian, each individual Christian. And remember, 
The primary principle of Christian stewardship is just that. It's stewardship. Stewardship is not ownership. As a steward, we manage resources entrusted to us on behalf of and in accordance with the wishes of the owner. A steward is given a stewardship is given for a purpose, and we must act according to that purpose. We must manage God's resources that we have been entrusted with according to God's purpose and according to God's priorities, not our own priorities. And before I went into to ministry, as many of you know, I worked at a university. I was a senior level manager at a state university. And in this role, I had, I had signature authority over several university budgets totaling over $10 million a year. And, and I had discretion on how these funds were, were spent. I could decide how much out of this I wanted to allocate to specific projects, specific departments, uh, specific personnel that were under my management. But I also had clear guidelines. I had goals. I had limitations on how I spent every single dollar. I had executives over me reviewing and approving my decisions, as well as university and state auditors looking at these every single expenditure, make sure it was legal and according to established state protocols. I couldn't simply just spend the money as I wanted on my own personal benefit or personal benefit of those in my family. Doing so would get me fired, could even get me put in prison. My friends, this is the way each of us is to think about our stewardship, our specific resources that God has entrusted to us. It all belongs to God. And he gives a specific way that he wants us to use these stewardship, this, these resources that he's gifted to us. And he tells us it's for his glory, not for our personal comfort. We are stewards. We are to manage these resources according to his purposes. He's entrusted them to us. And the other thing, the thing we need to keep in mind, we will each be held accountable. Just as if I would have spent money on myself when I was working at the, at the university, I would have been called into my boss's office or called into the prosecutor's office to, say how, to give an account of how I spent my money. Each one of us will stand before the Lord and give an account how we've managed the stewardship that he has given to us, down to every last penny, every talent he has given us, every ability he has given to us. So this is the second thing we see here. Third thing we see is that giving is a regular activity, not a once and done. Again, on verse 2, he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Each week, they're to put something aside for the Lord's collection. This is regular. This is a regular weekly reminder of their stewardship. It's a reminder that it all belongs to the Lord. Also notice this is done on the first day of the week. Now, this could be simply a reference to when they had their worship services. As you know, the early churches, the early Christians, like the church today, worshipped on the first day of the week. And they did this to commemorate uh, the resurrection of our Lord. But I think the symbolism is even deeper than this. This symbolism, I think, can both apply to our worship and to our giving. See, being done on the first day of the week, I think this indicates that the, that the Lord, the Lord is our highest priority and he is our first priority. See, God is our first priority both in our time and in our money. The first thing we do each week is to worship the Lord. The first place we give our money each week is to the work of the Lord. And isn't this the exact opposite of the way we usually think? The way we usually see this? See, we see the week is starting on Monday and Saturday as the end or Sunday as the end. And if we have time, if we have energy left after a week of work and a, and a day of play, maybe we'll give the Lord an hour each week. But if we had a rough week or if we were out late on Saturday night, 
<clears throat> then we will sleep in because we need to we need to rest up before a start of a new week where the real work begins. And the same is true of our money. We give the Lord what is left over after we've paid all of our bills and after we've bought all the things that, that we just had to have. And then, then if there's anything left over, we may give a portion of that to the Lord. My friends, here's, here, here's an absolute truth, and, and a truth that I have personally verified in my own life and countless others, I'm sure many of you here, verified as well. If you give the Lord what is left over, after you pay all your other bills and expenses and pay for all your desires, you will never give anything. You'll never have enough. You will always come up short. There will be always something else that you can put before it. But if you give the Lord first, you will always have enough. You will always have enough for everything else. This is God's math. If our top priority is the Lord and his work, he will give us all the resources we need to do the things that he has commanded. I think it was the missionary Hudson Taylor who famously said, God's work done God's way will never lack God's resources. Now, some of you may be saying, well, you start to sound a little bit like those prosperity preachers there. You know, you just sow a seed and God's going to richly bless you, right? Is that what you're starting to think? Well, the error in the prosperity gospel is the motivation. See, the motivation is wrong in the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel sees God as an investment, Their motivation is really on getting a big return from their investment so that they can then take that return and spend it on themselves. So they think, if I I sow this, see if I sow this $1,000, then God owes me. He's going to give me $10,000 in return, and then I can spend that money on myself. This is not what I'm talking about at all, no. Scripture says if we are faithful, we are faithful to God's command, he will then enable us to do what he has commanded us to do. 1 Corinthians 10 13 says us that God will provide a way out of temptation. See, there is no promise that God will give us everything that we want in order for us to use this blessing selfishly. In fact, if God did, it would not be a blessing at all. If we actually spent it selfishly on ourselves, it would actually become a curse. Because what it does is it focuses on ourselves and not on God. Our Old Testament reading from this morning from Malachi, Malachi 3.10 says, he says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. See, what there was, we've seen this when we were studying our, the book of Malachi in our, in our home group a couple, a couple of years ago. What we see is this was a lack of trust in God. They didn't believe that God would actually provide for them, so they had to withhold the tithe, that they would withhold it because they had to fend for themselves. They really didn't believe God was real. That was what it is. They didn't believe God was real. And they believed any money that was given to God was simply a waste of time, was simply a superstitious waste. But but if God is their number one priority, and they demonstrate this fact by their checkbook, God would indeed provide for them. Again, it's not that God needs our money. God owns all things. He can provide for the poor. He can provide for his church he can provide for the propagation of the gospel without our money. But what this is, our giving is a barometer. It is a barometer for where our heart is. We may say we believe one thing, but how we spend our money reveals what we truly believe. It reveals what is truly important to us. And there are so many Christians who feel that they just, they just can't make men ends meet. And, and because of this, they refuse to trust God. They refuse to make God their first priority, not not just in word, but in action, by how they spend their money. My friends, this is how this is the way God's work math works. 
If we fail to trust God, if we fail to make him our first priority, he will take away what we think we save. In the book of Haggai, the people were putting their own needs first, above worship. They were living in nice houses, but God's temple lay in ruins. Listen to the Lord's rebuke in, in Haggai chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house, that is the temple, lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You see what the Lord is saying here? He's saying if you focus solely on yourself, focus solely on your own needs, if you think you can't afford, they they thought they couldn't afford to rebuild the temple. They couldn't afford to focus on the things of the Lord. And look at what the results happens. The Lord frustrates all their efforts. They sowed much, but they harvested little. They ate, but they never had enough. They clothed themselves, but they never were warm. They earned wages, but they put them in a bag with holes, and they just fell out. God takes away what they withheld from him. My friends, I have experienced this personally. And I, some of you know the story. When I first became a Christian, I was very tight-fisted. And I didn't think I could afford to give anything to the church. And I remember the first time I, 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 we actually did a pledge, and I gave $2 a week. $2 a week. That was all that I thought that I could afford. And I did this for several years. And then right ready, when we were about ready to move to Virginia, we could not sell our house because our septic system had failed. And in New Jersey, unlike here, we, we put a septic system in our new house. We built only $3,000. There, we with all the environmental rules, and, and, and it was obscenely expensive. It cost over $30,000 to repair that septic system. And this was back in 1999. And you know what? I, I calculated, after the fact, I calculated that the cost of that failed system was about what I would have tithed over those years if I would have been faithful. See, I could have voluntarily given the money to the Lord or he would take it from me. And I think it was kind of poetic, really, how God took the money from me, putting it into a, a septic system. See, this was the negative side of, of God's math. But thankfully, thankfully, I've also seen the positive side of God's math so many times, more times than I can recount. When we moved to Virginia, we went to a church, and, and again, this church had you, you make a pledge so that they could do their budget. And I still, again, was very lacking in faith. So I pledged a very small amount. It was more than $2 a week. I think I pledged about $1,000 for the year, which was about $20 a week. But what I decided to do is I'm going to try. I'm going to try to tithe. So I would write a check for you know 10% of what I made that week. And when we moved to Virginia, this was difficult because you know, we took a pretty big pay cut moving to Virginia. Lynn was working part-time in New Jersey, and then she was going to vet school, so she wasn't working and we had a debt of vet school, and, and I took a pay cut to the job that I had, I think 20 to 25% pay cut. But I said, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to do it. But in my mind, see, see what, what I was really, I was hedging my bets. What I said is, I, I was, I'm really prepaying my pledge. And once I get up to that $1,000, I can stop if it doesn't work. So I tried doing this, and, I, and I, I went to this, and you know what happened? God provided. God provided. I, I went every week. I, I don't know how it worked, but God provided and we saw all the little ways that God provided. Far too many for us to list. Just things where, where money would come in, we didn't even understand where it was coming from. Things that, I mean, again, it didn't make sense. 
And we shortly hit, we reached our, our pledge amount, and we blew right by it. And we continued to tithe ever since. And then we even, we even supported mission, and we even were able to go beyond, and God provided. But the biggest miracle was not the, the countless ways that, that God provided for us. The biggest miracle was the way that God changed me. He changed me. He freed me, really, from, from the fear and the anxiety that was related to, to finances. And, and Lynn's not here to tell you, but she, she can attest. I, when we first got married, I was beyond frugal. I, I was just cheap. I, I was just really cheap. I mean, I, I refused to spend money on anything. And really what it was, it was due to fear. And I, I still don't have an expensive taste, but, and I still occasionally struggle in this area. But for the most part, I am free of this fear. And again, I can give countless examples of experience of, of God's provision. I've seen this both in our own personal lives and saw this when I was working on the board of a Christian school uh, when we were in seminary and Lynn lost her job. And again, we saw how God provided. We had no income. And God provides here at Northgate. You can talk to the elders. You could see so many examples where we have a, a need and we said, we don't have the money in our budget. We don't have a, a positive cash flow. But we said, that's a need that we, the Lord wants us to do. We step out on faith and the next week money comes in that we weren't expecting to provide for it. When we are faithful, the Lord provides. And again, I, I, I could spend an entire sermon just giving you the amazing things of how the Lord has provided. So this is the third thing that we see about putting God first in our giving. The fourth thing we see in this passage about Christian giving is that we are not given a set amount or percentage to give. Again, look at verse 2. It says, On the first day of the week, everyone, each of you, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. As he may prosper. See, in the Old Testament, the law called for the tithe, the tenth of one's increase or income. And this, again, was the start. With all the other requirements, as I mentioned, they added up to about a third of the income. But the tithe is not a requirement for the New Testament believer. I'm sure you're not going to hear that from a lot of churches saying tithe is not a requirement for you New Testament believers. We are not required. We are here to give according to our ability, according to how God has prospered us. And this looks different for different people. There are some people that God has, God has prospered so much they can give way beyond the tithe. I've heard of some people actually giving a reverse tithe. Imagine that. 90% they give away and they live on 10%. And there are others, due to their current situation, that they cannot even they can't give a ten percent. They're barely getting by. They, don't have, they, they have more debts than they have. They can't give ten percent. And not only does this look different for different people, but it actually looks different for for two people who are in the exact same financial situation, have the same income and the same level of expenses. They may give vastly different amounts. And to understand why we see these differences, we need to look at another principle that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. Not in this letter, but in 2 Corinthians. And we actually sang a, a song, a hymn, based on this verse. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 8, Paul says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So here's the bottom line for each of us. We must give as we have decided in our own heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. And for some people, this may be 10%. For some people, this may be 1%. For some people, it may be 90%. It must be what God has put on our heart. God loves a cheerful giver. We are to give cheerfully. We are to give joyfully. 
We're not to give out of compulsion, resenting it the whole time, feeling like we're, we're paying our taxes and hating it and, re, and feeling stressed about it, feeling like we have no choice. For Christians, we should strive. We should strive to be generous. We should want to give more. We should strive to really to build our faith and, and walk out and trust the Lord as evidenced through our finances. We should step out on faith with our giving. But we must always listen to the direction of the Holy Spirit. We should be a, a cheerful giver, not, not giving out of guilt, not giving out of pride, not giving out of fear or pressure from the church or, or, or an attempt to manipulate God for some future blessing. But rather we are to give cheerfully. We are to give joyfully expressing our love to the Lord, expressing our gratitude to the Lord, expressing our faithfulness uh, toward him and our trust in his faithfulness to provide for us, for our future need. We are. That, that's what we're doing. When we're giving, we're trusting. Lord, you're going to give back. You're going you're gonna to give. You're, you're going to provide us what we need. As we grow in our sanctification, God will gradually grow us in this area and we become a more cheerful giver. We will grow in our trust and we will grow in our faithfulness. And then we'll be amazed. Then we will be blown away by both how God provides for us, but even more so how he changes, how he changes our attitudes, how he changes our desires. And the truth is we cannot outgive God. He will provide for our needs. But the blessing is so much more. It's so much more than a crass material blessing promised by the prosperity gospel. What it is is we will change. Our thinking will change. Our attitudes will change. We will become more like Christ. So this is our fourth thing we look at. Last thing I want to see in this passage is we must always require accountability for the use of our giving. And we see this in, in verses 3 and 4. He says, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. See, Paul is having the Corinthian church select the people People that they know, people that they trust, people that they accredit, they're selecting these people to handle the money that's collected. Notice Paul is not saying, give the money to me. He's not saying, trust me. He's not saying, he, he says, he's saying if the situation makes sense, I will accompany them with the money and I'll take it if it's needed. But if not, I, w- I won't go. He says, but, but he's not demanding to go. And you see, we live in a fallen world. And there are far too many hucksters, and even maybe even especially <clears throat> in the church. And how many times do you hear about pastors or, or ministry leaders living lavish lifestyles on the back of the sacrificial giving of the saints? I just I was just listening to a podcast about the one fallen megachurch leader who had this debit card that was loaded up, and he was going to clubs with, and drinking on this uh, with this card. Or you've heard about people who have the private jets and, and multiple homes and lavish mansions and, and $5,000 sneakers, all paid for with sacrificial giving of the people. And many of these large megachurches, they don't have local oversight. They don't have local accountability. They have boards that are made up of other megachurch pastors. And they refuse it. And, and many of them refuse to even disclose the pastor's compensation. And, and requiring staff to actually sign a, a non-disclosure agreement, threatening lawsuits if they mention. And again, we, didn't we just talk about lawsuits among believers earlier on in the study? <clears throat> and this is what we're seeing. But as Christians, we must demand transparency. We must demand accountability of how our sacrificial giving to the church is being used. And at Northgate, you know we have our annual meeting. We have the budget is presented. Usually Jack and Mike will get up and present 
the budget, and in there it has how much is spent on everything, including Nathan and me and the rest of our staff, how much is going to us. And even though Nathan and I are on, on the session, we don't we abstain for any votes uh, about our compensation. That comes from outside. We are not making those decisions. In addition, any giving that we would give in mercy ministry or anything or any project is in our session records, and they're open to anyone other than executive session, but executive session is about pastoral issues. It's not about financial, but any financial issue is open to anyone in the church. Anything, how we spend anything. You just know we're putting a new door on there. You can find out how much we're spending on that new door, and any decisions that we are making is made. And above that, it's not only are we accountable to the local congregation, but in our Presbyterian form of government, we are also accountable to the Presbytery. The Presbytery has oversight and looks at what we're doing and making sure that we're, we're following the, the procedures that are set out in the book of uh, church order, how we're to manage the church. So we do have this transparency. So let's reel all this in. Let's say, uh, what, what is our takeaway here for us here at Northgate? What are some specific takeaways and applications from this passage? Well, the first application, as with every sermon, if anyone here, anyone hears my voice is not a believer, your only application is to come to Christ. Your only application is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to come to Christ. That is your only hope. That is your need. If you are here and not regenerate, we don't want your money. We're not, we're not looking for money. You are our mission field. We want you to come to Christ. We want you to join the family. If you're a visitor to this church, again, this, you give to your own church that you're a member of. You don't give to, to, to our church. It's, it's part of the Christ, but, but it's giving into the kingdom of work. It's not about an individual church. Again, that what <clears throat> I'm not going to tell people come from a, another church and come into my church. No, it's the kingdom. We are looking at the kingdom. We're not looking ma- microscopically. So that's the first thing. If you're not a Christian, come to Christ. The second thing is, for Christians now, <clears throat> remember God owns everything. God owns all of our resources. And they have been entrusted to us. And we will be held accountable for how we use every single thing that we have. Every single gift that we have been given. And keep in mind, keep that in mind when you're, when you're making every decision. Keep in mind and ask yourself this question. Ask yourself, does my bank account, does my checkbook reflect my faith? That's a question that you have to ask the Lord. That's the second. The third, last thing here is recognize that God does not need our money. Giving is not an obligation. It's not a necessity that we'd rather not do. Realize that giving is a privilege. It is a privilege. It is a blessing. And God uses our giving to the work of the kingdom and our giving to others in need as a way of, of breaking a hold that the world has on us. And by giving generously and extravagantly, we're really defeating this idol that we all have, this, this God of this world that deceives us into thinking that we are sovereign, we are autonomous, and we have no need for God because I've got a big bank account. And this attitude is really deadly and it is a, a block from enjoying our freedom in Christ. And again, I know that this idol has a mighty grip on all of us, has a mighty grip on me. And, and again, it's something I have to battle against this grip. And, but I encourage each one of you, I encourage you to step out on faith. Put God to the test, as Scripture says. Put him to the test. Sow abundantly and see if you will reap abundantly. And God will provide. He will provide for our every need. And the reaping may not be financially, but it certainly will reap freedom. Freedom from our bondage to fear. Freedom in Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as always, I preach to myself as much as anyone else. I pray for all of us, Lord. We are, we are in bondage. We, we are in bondage to our finances and, and, and think that that's our freedom. That is where our security is. But, Lord, you have proven, you have proven so many times in times of economic 
distress that you could take it away in an instant. Markets crash. You can take it away. Inflation takes away bank accounts. Uh, thieves come and steal, as, as we had said in our scripture reading. Uh, we, are to, we are to store up treasures, not on earth, but treasures in heaven. So, Father, I pray for every one of us, Lord. I pray for your grace to be on us, Lord, to, to, to really to remove that burden and, and that bondage that each of us has to ourself and to our finances and give us the freedom in Christ. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.